0: Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello listeners and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest is a former marketing executive, a lawyer, a professor at the University of Miami and guest faculty at Harvard Law School's executive education program. She spent more than a decade researching the evolving legal marketplace. In her book, Legal Upheaval, she provides powerful evidence that collaborative innovation is the new value equation in law. Michelle DiStefano, welcome to Left Foot. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's a pleasure to be here. Michelle, your book explores the gaps that exist between what clients say they want from their lawyers and what lawyers are delivering. Can you elaborate on those differences?
1: Sure. So in Law Without Walls, over the past eight years, I've led over 190 multidisciplinary teams with lawyers on them on a 16-week innovation journey. And additionally, for some large corporations like Microsoft, I've run similar programs with multidisciplinary teams. And while the point, of course, is to create an innovation at the end of the journey, the real reason why the people go on this journey and why Corporations like Microsoft and others want their lawyers to go on this journey is really for the change in mindset, skill set, and behaviors. Clients today are looking to transform how lawyers collaborate. They're really looking for a different type and level of service. Yet, lawyers right now aren't really sure what clients are asking for. Clients have this new expectation, and yet there is what I call an innovation disconnect. Clients are crying for innovation. We hear it all the time. Innovate, innovate. But what they're really asking for is a new type of service that's in the disguise of innovation.
0: That's an interesting point because we do hear innovation. We definitely push people to define it. What is the disconnect? How would you suggest resolving it? Where have you seen it resolved that could possibly act as an example for our audience?
1: Well, right now, one of the disconnects is that clients' call for innovation is a bit vague. So, for example, when there's a request for innovation, it's not really being made clear. What do you mean by innovation? Second, as I mentioned earlier, what I really think clients are asking for is the mindset, skill set and behaviors of an innovator. What do I mean by that? I mean skills like empathy, self-awareness, humility, an emphasis on problem finding versus problem solving. If you look at the DNA of an innovator, if you read Clayton Christensen's book on the DNA and qualities of an innovator, those qualities, observing, networking, experiencing, questioning, associating, those are the qualities that clients today want from their lawyers and in some ways are skills that lawyers haven't honed and are not necessarily the ones that make us really good at our jobs.
0: Can you give us an example of where you've seen this play out successfully, where you've seen a group, either an in house legal department that has embraced it in the ranks of their practicing lawyers, or possibly an in house legal department who has embraced it in the legal operations side and has taken that back to their partners that are more in the executing matter end of the business?
1: Well, I've seen it many, many times in Law Without Walls. So the way Law Without Walls work is it's team-based, and these teams are led by lawyers. And on the team, we've got business professionals and entrepreneurs, and we have academics, and we have two to three law and business school students. And many, many, many lawyers have been through this journey. And of course, they started with the idea that, well, we're going to create a solution to a problem. We're going to create an innovation that's going to change the world. And what many have come back to me to say is my team back at my office, at my firm or in my department has asked me, what have you done with Craig? You know, what have you done with Caroline? Meaning I approach my work differently. I ask different questions. I listen in a different way and I approach problem solving and problem finding in a different way. So the beautiful thing about change is that it really does start with the individual. And then move out to affect the corporations and the departments on the whole. So a lot of people that have been through Law Without Walls are running their departments differently. There are people that used to be law firm lawyers that are now heads of operations at corporations and instilling design thinking and legal processes in the departments to try to make them more efficient. A specific example, if you want one from a team where they focused on empathy and understanding the user and concept visualization and strategic business design. A year ago, Pinsent Masons sponsored one of the Law Without Walls teams with a client, Cicero Bank. And what they found was the banks were facing a growing number of consumer complaints through the lending process. And they were struggling to prove that they had actually complied on time and they were paying a lot of penalties unnecessarily because the bank actually had complied, but they were unable to prove it and consumers were making complaints. So one might think that the solution to that problem, that was the problem posed to the team, would be something that would help the bank out. Right? How are we going to get the bank to either prove compliance or become more efficient at uh, proving that they complied or, you know, some other solution that would be very bank focused. And this team, through the process, studied not only the, we always say in Law Without Walls, there's two sides to every story. So, of course, yeah, the bank's upset. They're getting all these complaints and actually they were complying. But we said, go talk to some of the consumers. And what they found out was that the consumers were signing contracts without understanding the terms. They were confused and frustrated and angry. And they were making complaints, not necessarily because the bank hadn't complied, but because they didn't feel like they understood the process. The bank, on the other hand, felt like, well, wait a minute, we did everything we were supposed to do. We dotted our I's. We checked our, you know, we crossed our T's. We did what we were supposed to. And so by defining the target audience from both sides, the solution they came up with was one in which it became an educational tool for the consumer and at the same time, a proof of compliance for the bank.
0: In that example, was it bringing to light for the business that we did comply and that we were executing from a legal or compliance perspective, but there needed to be more of a business strategy link? Absolutely.
1: I spent almost eight years in marketing and advertising at Leo Burnett and then marketing at Levi Strauss & Company. And that experience has helped me so much as a lawyer because it gives me that business perspective. So the original challenge was written from a legal point of view, from a compliance point of view, and it was very bank focused, as it should be. I mean, (laughs) Cicero was Vincent Mason's client, yet it wasn't until the team stood back and took a more strategic and business minded view that they were able to see a solution that could work for both parties and help the bank Help their consumer, which wouldn't just help the bank with their legal issues, but also in the loan process, which is a major plus. One of the reasons why I developed Law Without Walls is because although some things related to business planning and understanding how to read financials can be taught in a classroom format, the other parts of business, the empathy and curiosity and the collaboration and the way that business people solve problems, that can't be taught in a classroom format. It has to be experiential and learning by doing. And unfortunately, right now, law schools don't do a great job at experiential learning or teaching how to work like a business person and think like a business person. And so providing those opportunities, I think, is essential. So it's chicken egg. If you ask a group of lawyers if they considered going to business school versus law school, almost 50% say they thought about it. Then you try to ask yourself, well, when lawyers come out of law school, did law professors like me, did we make you the way you are? Or did you choose law school instead of business school because you already had a tendency or temperament towards that type of complex problem solving and working? And what I think the ultimate professional is going to be able to do both. They're going to have the experience and skill set and mindset to collaborate like business professionals, but also the complex problem solving and thinking skills of a lawyer.
0: I know in business school, we did workshops where we were working on cases and not legal cases, of course, but business cases. And we would have a finance major and an investment major and a marketing major and a general business major, we would all work as a team. Is that how you're educating the lawyers that are going through your program? I'm assuming that's what Law Without Walls is focused on is that kind of work, but in a practical uh, situation. How is that translating to your students?
1: First, I teach with Scott in the Harvard Law School's exec ed program and have co-written a case that we use when I teach innovation and collaboration and design thinking as it relates to business development. And Scott Westfall and David Wilkins' program at Harvard Law School is designed to do exactly what you said, teach those skills that as lawyer leaders, we don't focus on. And I think there is the disconnect. We often don't think of lawyers as leaders, and we don't train leadership to law school students and or practicing lawyers. And for me, teaching innovation and teaching Law Without Walls is synonymous with teaching leadership. If you look at any of the latest best traits of the you know most successful inclusive leaders, they map right on <laughs> the traits of an innovator. So in some ways, I'm teaching innovation as a way to teach leadership in disguise. And that's what we do in Law Without Walls. It's like working on a real business case. Every single project that each team has one challenge. And that challenge is based on a real business case. And yes, it's at the intersection of law and technology and business, but the problems aren't legal ones and the solutions
0: aren't legal ones.
1: And that's the world we live in. There's no such thing as a solely legal problem.
0: You're right. So it always goes back to in a business situation, the problem they're trying to solve or an improvement they're trying to make. And now a word from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30 day trial membership. Go to audibletrial.com/leftfoot and download a free title to start listening. That's audibletrial.com/leftfoot. Your book really focused intensely on this whole innovation question and how law firms and lawyers are looking at implementing innovation. Can you talk about some things that are practical that our listeners can use that can start the conversation, whether they're in-house lawyers that are listening saying, we need to do a much better job of both talking about how we're going to change or innovate and then implementing it. Are there some practical things that our in-house lawyers can learn about or our firm lawyers can say, I know there's a program like that going on here at our firm. I should get involved. What are those things that a lawyer listener could be doing?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is that everyone always says that there's no I in team. I'm sure you've heard that before. And what I always say is there may not be an I in team, but there's two I's in the word innovation. And the first step we can take as lawyers is to keep an eye, like E-Y-E, like our eyeball on the letter I's in innovation. And I have a chapter coming out in a new book that I'm co-editing with Gunther Dobras called New Suits. That's exactly about this. And what I mean by that is as lawyers, one of the eyes is our identity. We identify as lawyers. And as lawyers, there are things that we're required to do. For example, innovators are supposed to be risk takers. We're supposed to have audacity. Lawyers are supposed to are risk averse because we're supposed to help identify and prevent risk. So I mean, I could list a laundry list of situations where some of the traits of an innovator completely contradict the identity of a lawyer and our role as a lawyer. Yet, as you say, our clients want us to do both. They want us to know our little area of law to the level of expertise we do if we're an outside lawyer, but then they want to help us help them wrap it up in business language and serve it up in less than one page with a real point of view back to the client. And so, just keeping in mind that our identity as a lawyer is actually something that prevents us from innovating and collaborating helps us, just like in cognitive bias. Knowing that it exists is a step forward, it isn't the solution. So that's one eye. And then the other eye in innovation is intrinsic motivation. Daniel Pink talks a lot about this in his various books, so do a, a lot of other people. And this idea of intrinsic motivation what motivates us? And lawyers get paid to be accountable for the work they do as an individual, generally, as opposed to compensated for collaboration. So understanding that our identity and our own intrinsic motivation and the way that we are compensated is actually in contradiction to collaborating and innovating is the first step towards making some change. The second thing I'd say is almost 20 years ago, a guy named Chris Avery wrote a book called Teamwork is an Individual Skill. And that is the one thing that everybody forgets. Chris Avery says something like, you know, if everybody entered every team meeting thinking they were the ones solely responsible to make sure that this teaming experience and collaborative experience went well, that everything would go so much better. But if teamwork truly is an individual skill, that means every lawyer needs to go find a way to hone some of those skills. The reality is we all get worse at the skills. So when I was in my 30s, I was better at giving and receiving feedback. I was probably a better leader and a better mentor than I am today when I'm, I'll just say in my 40s. Okay, we'll just leave it at that. And so going to a Harvard Law School executive education course or, you know, coming on a journey like Law Without Walls and sponsoring a team and actually spending time working on those skills, every lawyer should be doing that. You can't even think about innovating if you're not doing those first, those two things. And then the third thing I'd say is to think small. The number one problem with the word innovation is that everyone thinks it's pow, bam, you know, TNT. And as my very, very dear friend and colleague, James Batham, who heads up innovation at Evershed Sutherland says, it is TNT, but it's T as in tiny and as in noticeable T as in things. And so I think every lawyer, law firm, legal department should think of that, like start small. So years ago, I've spent my entire career interviewing general counsels about changes in the marketplace, you know, whether it was public relations 10 years ago and then compliance, et cetera. But years ago, when you would read about culture change and the literature on culture change, it used to be all about top down, right? Let's push that culture change through the organization. And then maybe five years ago, seven years ago, we started reading literature around focusing on the middle, middle out. And then more recently, when you read about creating culture change, whether it's compliance or any other type of culture change, it's about taking small pockets and groups of people and then working with that group, get that group right, and then spread it. And I think that's where any firm or legal department can start after you've solved the first two, right? The eyes and then the teamwork's and in individual skill and just pick one small group to do it. So I think it's great that firms, for example, are reorganizing by industry group. Great idea. But to take a massive firm and make that huge of a reorganization and expect behavior and mindset change at the same time is a lot. Just start with two and get a client involved and make some progress. In my book, I call it the bonfire approach, which Chris White, who is uh, heads up innovation at a firm in the UK, said he likes to start bonfires. And I was like, Chris, I love that idea because that's what I believe in. And the bonfire approach is, and I know that bonfires are not PC anymore because they ruin the environment. I'm an 80s girl. We had bonfires on the beach. When you see a bonfire, you want to go over it there and you want to roast a marshmallow. So if you create small little bonfires, I think that's how you start to create innovations and create a culture of innovation.
0: How are we doing? How are we doing on the maturity scale? How are we doing as an industry to say we are on this road to change? We're embracing it. You know, what's your perspective?
1: Well, I mean, people love to say that the law marketplace isn't changing. And I got to tell you, having just written a book and spent two years interviewing hundreds of general counsels and heads of innovation at law firms and then writing a book called Legal Upheaval... Saying that we haven't changed doesn't sit so well with me, (laughs) as you can imagine. And in my book, I talk about how I believe there is what could be called an innovation tournament happening in the law marketplace and that everyone is playing in it. And I stand by that. We're seeing innovation across multiple dimensions the way legal services are delivered, the way they're priced, the way they're packaged, the way they're defined, the way they're sourced. I mean, think of how. You know, way back in the dot com bubble <laughs> burst era, there were law firms that tried to source legal work by investing in startups. We're seeing interesting things like that. We're seeing legal products uh based on technology like you can buy a premonition of what your odds are to winning. So we're seeing a lot of change, and I think everyone's playing in it. big law firms, big corporations, the big four. Alternative legal service providers, which I know no one likes to be called that, law companies. And so we are seeing a lot of change. It's just that in the legal marketplace is still growing and not everybody's piece is as big as growing at the same rate. The slice of the change though is still really small compared to the entire legal market universe. So I like to say that, you know, the sky is not falling. We are changing and we're keeping an eye on it, right? It's not innovation and the disruption, Clayton Christensen sense, and it's not Chicken Little. I mean, the sky is not falling. And I have high hopes that as a marketplace, lawyers and law professionals like you working together, if we're keeping an eye on what's happening, that we're going to create lots of more types of innovations and changes and that the marketplace will continue to grow, as will our definition of what is law and also what is innovation. I always say it's a great time to be a lawyer because it's not that hard to be innovative, right? So we're changing, but we haven't changed that fast. So yeah.
0: That's a great point. At least there's a lot of awareness about the change that would be beneficial to the industry. And then there's in-house legal departments that are implementing things that may have been implemented in other industries 10 years ago, but they are making a real impact as in-house legal departments are implementing them today. And I think a great example, NetApp was one of the winners of an innovation award for getting rid of paper. They received the award in 2018. What they did is they rolled out DocuSign in every place within their business and it became the standard. It is the standard. And between that and other processes around it that were eliminated or replaced by technology, it made a real impact on their business. Another example would be DXC and their rebadging of lawyers and getting their lawyers onto someone else's payroll where they can access technology to be more efficient and then having them work on DXC still. So they didn't lose any of that knowledge and any of that historical perspective. A lot of things are happening.
1: In Law Without Walls, I make up lots of different types of exercises to get teams to go from a problem to a narrower problem to a narrow target audience, because, you know, the more time spent on the problem, the better the solution. And then we also uh, have different exercises to get people to ideate solutions. And one of those exercises I've made up is called exaptation. And the idea is if you exact something from one field and put it into another that you can solve a problem brilliantly. I even tell teams to steal and imitate, borrow, right? Because as long as you take something from one place and you put it into another, that is an innovation. I mean, so think of incubators. Incubators were exapted from the heating lights for chicken eggs. So it has been through time. Um, Stephen Johnson has this unbelievable book called Where Good Ideas Come From. And he gives example upon example of how exaptation is and has become innovation. And I'm a big believer in that. It
0: comes in all forms, innovation. Absolutely great. We've got this environment where law firms are creating lower cost, either centers or models or a combination of partnerships with other organizations, they are coming back to their customers and saying, you can continue to work with us and give us your legal work, your legal attention, because we are also innovating and becoming more efficient and coming to the market with an alternative and really understand that your legal bill is a big part of your business spend. There's this question about testing that, right, and ensuring that the law firms are actually doing what they're saying. Not that we're questioning that, but just that it's having the impact and in the efficiency that they're now coming to the market with. And we see a lot of this in you know, a law firm saying, hey, we are rolling out all of these things. And then a customer saying, well, great, show me how it's impacting my business. In my history, in my background, in my work history, we've always looked at audits as a way to say, yes, law firm, thank you for offering that. Let's audit how you're using that improvement on our business, on our account. Have you seen that? Is there a way for in-house legal departments to be going back to their law firms and saying, hey, that's terrific. Show me. What's your recommendation?
1: So it's interesting. In my book, I talk about, you know, is there a way to measure innovation, the value of innovation? Or, you know, I often say, is it a little bit like porn? You know, you know it when you see it. Right now, I'm not seeing a real push by clients to do anything other than know it when they don't see it. So for example, people will ask me, why didn't you list all the innovations in your book? I say, well, number one, by the time it would be published, it wouldn't be that innovative. And number two, it's not what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of pointing out what isn't working, what isn't innovative, what hasn't saved money. I think there is a need for more project management and tracking of everything, including budgets. I mean, that's probably the number one complaint clients have is surprises about budgets. And that would be innovative if someone would just fix that. So I do think there needs to be more of that. And I have heard from the law firm lawyers that I've interviewed that clients often and don't check back in. So they might in an RFP ask for an innovation or ask for a change or ask for a new tool, but then they don't check back and make sure that either the law firm does it or that the savings are passed to them. So everyone talks about this less for more era that we're in, but GCs understand that law firms have to make money. So I think there's a need for check-in and for project management and to go back and make sure that what is said that's going to be done is being done. Yet, I also don't think we should start having law firms running off creating shiny new toys and all these innovations on their own and trying to pass them and sell them off to clients because that hasn't worked either. So I think that we're sort of at a a crossroads where I would say it's on the clients to be more specific about what they're asking for and then measure it. And it's on the law firms to be more proactive at collaborating with the clients to create whatever solutions and efficiencies they're going to create. And perhaps we should talk about sharing risks and rewards as opposed to it being like it's very ownership-like. So sometimes law firms will say to me, well... We didn't really want to do that, create something with the client because we want to test it first. (laughs) I get that. Or we didn't really want to create it with the client because then who owns it? So it's a very lawyer-like way to look at collaboration and business development. I get it. It could be worth a lot of money. So I don't think I have an answer to your question other than I think it's time people start focusing on that question that you asked.
0: The non-answer is fantastic because it is really in line with a lot of the thinking that we're seeing or the actions we're thinking out there around partnership. And we're starting to see, you know, the legal tech companies get involved with the service companies and we're seeing law firms partner with these other players in the marketplace. And I think a good example, I mentioned Axiom earlier and priori and, and all of these companies that are out there on that flexor lower space that are allowing law firms to flex as their needs increase and decrease around team members. And that also goes for technology and for services. I'm hopeful that partnership becomes one of the answers that goes along with that. Michelle, this interview has been like reading your book, Page Turner. For me and people in this space that are saying there are people out there talking and teaching and educating and playing Planting the flag for this change that's occurring in the industry. First off, thank you for sharing all the great content.
1: No, thank you. I mean, writing a book is, I have three children and I always say writing a book was like having a fourth child. And believe me, they think that fourth child was, uh, was the favored one for the last couple of years. So I appreciate you reading it.
0: No, absolutely. It was fantastic. And I know our listeners will appreciate everything you've shared. Are there any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye?
1: No, I think that if you're listening to this podcast, you're already doing the right things and keeping an eye on what's happening in the marketplace and how each one of us can contribute to changing the legal marketplace to be what we want it to be for the future is the right step. So I just really appreciate everyone out there who's listening.
0: Michelle, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12 session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.